0: This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guest today is Stephen Kruger. He is the author of Supporting Trans People in Libraries and the Scholarly Publishing Librarian at Dartmouth College. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from listeners just like you. Find out how you can help support the show by going to circulatingideas.com/support or rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice. right, Stephen, welcome to Circulating Ideas. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, We are going to talk mostly um, kind of about issues around the book that you wrote recently called Supporting Trans People in Libraries. Um, But I wanted to start out by asking how you came to librarianship in the first place. How did you find that as your career?
1: Yeah, uh, so it was not... Entirely a planned directory, but it also wasn't terribly surprising. I've been working in libraries on and off since high school. Um, my tiny, no stoplight town in Vermont has an all volunteer little public library, and I started volunteering there. Uh, my mother also volunteered there, and I think still does. Um, so that was my first intro to to libraries, and then I was. I followed the pretty standard track for academic librarians, I think, and that I was a circulation assistant all through college. And I remember very clearly um, my last semester of undergrad being absolutely certain that I was not going to grad school. I had no more interest in academia, and I was done. And then I uh, did a whole bunch of different attempts at jobs. Um, let's see. I was a cheesemaker. I learned how to milk sheep and make soap, um, I considered taking over the family farm for a bit. That didn't go great. Um, I Let's see. The longest lasting one was I was a chocolatier at an artisanal chocolate shop in Asheville, North Carolina for a while. Um, I stage managed for a, a community Shakespeare company, and eventually I figured out that I wanted something that felt more long-term and also was interesting. I was finding myself getting fairly bored with all of the, the jobs that I had tried, and I'd always kept coming back to librarianship as the thing that that I had never found boring and that had—I um, knew I liked it, and I knew it had a lot of different opportunities. And at that point, pre-grad school, I had no idea even what the job opportunities were. So um, I—let's see, I think I took about eight years off between undergrad and starting at UNC, and then I uh, got my master's degree at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and— Um, there I focused in on academic librarianship, which I kind of knew I was going to, but there I got a much better idea of what that actually meant. And, um, yeah, I graduated, uh, just under three years ago and I am now in my second job out of grad school and I have been in this job for about three weeks, which is a weird time to have a pandemic (laughs) start. So, um, but yeah, so sort of trial and error, but I'm happy with where I've ended up.
0: Yeah, I guess living through a pandemic, that family farm might be sounding good. (laughs) You know, they have it made. It's all off the grid. They grow most of their own food. They're just fine. Yeah. (laughs) And they they can be isolated very easily. And yeah. Yeah. So let's get back to the uh, subject of your book, which is supporting trans people in libraries. Um, That is from Libraries Unlimited. Um, Why did you feel like a a book like this was needed and I guess, why did you decide that you wanted to be the one that wrote it?
1: Well, for context, uh, in case this isn't blindingly obvious, I am transgender. Um, I was assigned female at birth. Um, I now identify as male. Um, and I came out and did most of my transition during my last year of grad school. And at that point I, um, I wrote uh, an article for a column in uh, Public Services Quarterly. Uh, They have a column that's library graduate students writing about what they think are sort of current future issues in the field. And so I wrote uh, an article for that about things that academic libraries could do to better support trans patrons, because at that point I was working in academic libraries as a student assistant, and I was also experiencing big academic libraries as a patron in a way that i never had before and so from that article um that came out in i think september of 2017 and so sometime after that um jessica gribble from libraries unlimited who is my editor and who is a a delight i think she put us together for this interview as well so thank you jessica for all the things she actually reached out to me and asked if I would be interested in taking the content of the article and expanding it into a full book proposal. So the book wasn't entirely my idea. It was content I was (laughs) interested in, but I probably wouldn't have done it, at least not at this point, if they hadn't reached out to me and invited me to submit a proposal. Um, And that still meant I had to come up with with the full book proposal and figure out that I could turn the content into a full-length book, but um, it had never occurred to me to try and write a book about my profession, certainly not this early career, and so the fact that they reached out to me specifically about this topic, it meant a lot to have a publisher that didn't necessarily focus on this type of issue um, inform me that this was something that they would be interested in putting a book out about. So, let's see, I I wrote up a proposal, I expanded it outside of academic libraries, that's still my area of expertise, but a lot of the topics um, vary, and I have worked in public libraries as well, and, yeah, so I came up with my full book proposal, it was accepted, and um, I got a contract, and I wrote a book. I was not expecting any of that to happen, if you'd (laughs) asked me a couple years ago, I would have been very surprised.
0: Um, I, I, I can say as I, I'm a public librarian, I can say it, it it spoke to me well, so you did a good job at least to reaching out to that audience. So
1: Excellent. I'm very glad to hear it.
0: Um, um, and I do like the um, angle you took on the book of saying, you know, you are a trans person, but that does not mean that you speak for the entire community <laughs> and, and everything that you're saying is what everybody agrees with, but it's like you're pointing out the way you, you see it.
1: So. That was extremely important to me. Um, but i really didn't want people to who had read it carefully to to be able to say this is the thing to do and a trans person said this so it must be true because there is a problem that happens with i think a lot of marginalized identities where one person's experiences and thoughts are treated as representative of the whole right. and um there are patterns certainly like there are experiences that a lot of trans people will have but Everyone's experiences are different, some of them drastically different. Sometimes that's to do with identity. Um, I tried to find the balance between practicality and not get too into gender theory, but I did want to make the point with the books that um, intersectional identities are strongly... They're they're a big factor in the experiences of a lot of transgender people. Um, For those unfamiliar, intersectionality is a concept developed by the scholar Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, Originally, it was focused on the experiences of black women as being different from the experiences of white men, women, and black men, because the two marginalized identities being female and being a person of color created a different experience than people with just one of those. Um, at this point, people use it to talk about a lot of different identities. So um, in the context of this, the experiences of trans people of color can be incredibly different, um, the experiences of, say, a non-binary person versus a um, a binary trans person Um, that may be different. Uh, All sorts of things, all sorts of different factors play into it. Disability, um, socioeconomic status, there are many, many different factors that mean no two trans people will have identical experiences, and two different trans people may have drastically different experiences and I, i've i was trying to find the balance between making the book be useful and relevant but also mm-hmm. acknowledging that my experiences are not representative of everyone else's
0: right it's kind of like i mean you as a um white able trans person is going to be different than mm-hmm. a um person of color or someone who's disabled yeah, yeah. so that, that, that's like you mean you can't even speak for all white abled people, though? So.
1: Or even I can't speak for all white able transmasculine people who work in libraries, <laughs> right? Um, right. I know my experience in academic libraries is different from that of the, someone who might be working in a public library. Um, there's a good example of this in the in the current issues with uh, there's a um, an anti-trans group that. Has been reserving meeting rooms in, the, in some public libraries in Canada and the U.S. lately, and the conversation about that would be completely different between public and academic libraries because an academic library at a private school has no requirements. Like, if we say you can't use our meeting room, you just can't. Right? There's and public libraries, the conversation is very different.
0: So the the podcast has kind of a wide um, variety of listeners, and so I wanted to kind of give a we probably should have done this earlier, but um, a um, kind of a basis for everybody to kind of understand the conversation that we're having. So, could you talk a little bit about what gender identity is versus just you know assigned sex at birth, and yeah. um, some some terms people might encounter when discussing these issues and identities?
1: Yeah, definitely. So you sent me this question, and I have a list of terms, and I have a bunch of them crossed out, because (laughs) this is something I ran into with writing the book, and it's something I think about whenever I do a workshop, because there's so much different language that's used to describe identities and experiences of trans people, Um, and... Again, it varies by person, it might vary by culture, it might vary, vary by generation or experience or background or personal identity. So I'm not going to go through and um, define every term you might hear. What I am going to do is recommend a website called the TransLanguage Primer, and that is translanguageprimer.org. Um, because that has a pretty good, comprehensive, relatively comprehensive List of terms and definitions, and more to this point, it is written by trans people, and again, like my own experiences, not everyone uses words the same way. There are definitely definitions on there that don't apply to everyone who uses that word for themselves um, so my my main note with with the uh, as far as language is if someone tells you they identify as a term, respect them and, and go by that um, in terms of specific identity terms do not question how someone tells you they identify. Um, In general, to actually answer your question a bit, um, so, (laughs) let's see. If we want to start really basic, um, a trans person is, I use trans as an umbrella term for people who, whose gender slash gender identity is different from, in some way, from the sex that they are assigned at birth. So, I am a trans man I was assigned female at birth I am male um, I am a trans person when I use that as a, a general term I use it to cover non-binary people um, trans men, trans women, agender gender queer like, the way I see it, if someone identifies themselves as trans, they're a trans person that's all that, that matters right. um, there's also some of your listeners may be familiar with the term cisgender cis um, which often is abbreviated to just cis. So, a cis person is someone whose gender is not different from the sex they're assigned at birth. So, if I I was assigned female at birth, if I still identified as female, I would be a cisgender person. It's just it's just a descriptive term, and the value of having that term to me is that it gives us a, a label for people who. Um, are not transgender that isn't just, quote, normal people. right? So it's important to it, – it's like um, – have you ever read a book where the author identifies – you know when a character is black because they tell you, but they don't tell you when a character is white?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, to me, that's what the use of having a term like cisgender. It's saying everyone has a label that fits them like this, and it's not just – anyone who doesn't have one is the normal. We, I just talked about terms gender and gender identity. To me, those are pretty synonymous. Uh, it's what your gender is as a, as a person. Um, it's how you self-identify, and it may not match the sex you were assigned at birth. Um, it may not match uh, the gender marker on your driver's license, uh, but it is who you are as a person.
0: And um, it's separate from sexual preference. <laughs>
1: yes i had that on my list too um so gender identity or gender is completely different from sexual or romantic orientation um i identify as male i also identify as gay and asexual but those have nothing to do with my identity as a trans person um you can have gay trans people you can have gay cisgender people you can have anywhere in between um or outside of either so Yeah, so sexual and romantic orientation is just a different thing from gender.
0: And so there are also some negative terms um, (laughs) applied to uh, marginalized identities. Um, But can you talk about some of the common examples of trans-negative behaviors um, and microaggressions?
1: Yeah, definitely. That's what a lot of the book is about. Um, So before getting into that, I want to talk about the term trans-negativity, so I think a lot of people are familiar with the concept of transphobia or homophobia, probably more commonly, um, which are different terms, but similar concept. Um, and it's easy to say, well, I'm not transphobic. And there's, I think there is value in acknowledging that you can behave in ways that negatively impact trans people without it being intentional and without it being malicious. So that's why I make the distinction between transphobia and trans negativity. So to me, transphobia is tied to a personal negative opinion of trans people and there's intent behind it. Um, Whereas trans negativity, it's not about the intent. It's about the impact. So there can be incredibly well-meaning people who engage in trans negative behavior, um, just through ignorance, through lack of awareness, um, and usually that's where of course you can have transnegative behavior that's intentional and malicious as well. But I kind of think that if someone is engaging in that, then there's nothing I can say that will get through to them. So I tend to I try to focus on the unintentional transnegative behaviors. I come back to this over and over in my personal frustration. It's just trans people exist and that seems like it's a tiny, obvious thing, but so many of the issues that we come up on are just a lack of awareness that trans people exist. And in a lot of cases, it's not... If you asked someone, they would obviously be aware of the existence of trans people, but especially in like unintentional behaviors or more to the point in things like um, library systems or... Um, systems that are outside of the control of libraries and library workers. There's, you can tell that there's just the people who created the system never thought about how it would work for a trans person, and so it's a lot of trans negative experiences that I have had are just about that invisibility. So the biggest thing that that I would recommend people do is just be aware that think about how what you're doing or the system you're creating or the language that you use, think about how that would impact someone who is of any different gender identity. The big overall solution I have to that in most cases is just remove gender from the situation completely. There are so, so many ways in which we just use gender in day-to-day language um, or it's built into like a library card application or a, uh, job system or, or something where gender really doesn't need to be part of that. One of the, the big recommendations I always come back to is that um, go through your behaviors and your systems and the language that you use, and unless there is a reason, a really concrete, specific reason to have gender in there that outweighs the consequences of that negatively impacting people, just take gender out of it. You don't need gender on your library card application. So a big part of uh, – one of the more important chapters in the book to me is about best practices for for job postings and interviews. And so with this book, I tried to do some of what I haven't really seen in a lot of at least library-focused literature, which is acknowledge that – and this comes back to invisibility, too – acknowledge that trans people work in libraries. We're not just library patrons. It's not – we, the, the gracious librarians, are making this inclusive space for our patrons so they feel comfortable. Like, we're here. We're part of this profession. Um, we don't know how many of us there are because, uh, at least last I checked, I'm no longer an ALA member for a whole lot of reasons. But um, when I was, the survey that they do for members doesn't include sexual or romantic orientation, and it does not include gender identity. So there's no measurement – until someone does a giant survey of the profession, and probably even then, there is no measurement of how many trans people work in libraries. I know there are a fair number of us, but I also know that a lot of us are the only person at our workplace, at least who is out or who we know about, and that can be incredibly isolating. But going back to what we were just saying, with job postings, just removing gender goes a a pretty long way towards uh, not being actively off-putting to a trans person who's considering applying to your library. <laughs> and unfortunately, that's where we are. We're not at a, a point where we're trying to make things perfect. Um, a lot of what's in this in this book and a lot of the, the guidelines that I try to give people are just stop making it actively bad. There are many things that... Um, negatively impact trans people in library work, whether as patrons or as employees, that as soon as you point them out to someone, they can be fixed. They're relatively easy to fix. It's just someone has to point them out, and that's the invisibility issue again. Um, And there's there's a lot of language and best practices that do translate pretty well to most any marginalized group. and. That's, again, where I was trying to find the balance between um, making it a- – acknowledging that and encouraging people to maybe take the, the philosophy behind this and think about how it-, it could impact, say, disabled library users or employees. Or, or take the-, the philosophy of thinking about how this would impact someone who has different experiences and needs than you do and applying that to how your, your systems and practices are designed. Which is a huge issue in a profession that is as, like, we don't know the demographics of trans people in librarianship. We do know race. I don't know if we know disability, but we're an incredibly skewed profession. Right. Um, and just by dint of requiring a master's degree for a lot of our jobs, we're not getting too far with changing that.
0: Um, yeah. And I remember recently they put out new diversity stats, and I think they had. Gotten worse <laughs> with races. Yeah. Like we're trying to do all these initiatives, and it's why is why is the percentage of white librarians going up? And and, and you know, it's, I mean, it's basically you know, it's white female is the yeah vast majority of the profession.
1: And that's something to th- something to think about too. Almost all of the trans librarians I know are white and um, representing particular types of trans people, and that's not. A bad thing about them at all, it, but it's just something to be aware of that the skewed demographics of the profession do come out in the the particular um, within particular identities as well. When you like go reread your job descriptions and everywhere it says he slash she, replace it with they. These are these are little things that, to me, make a as someone who's looking at jobs, it makes a big difference if your library has a a non-discrimination statement. If it doesn't include explicitly include gender identity and gender expression, put those in um, or see if you can get that changed and include that written out in your job description. And these are things that not doing it isn't necessarily indicative of a workplace that's not comfortable for trans people, but having it out there clearly from the beginning to me that always indicates it makes me feel a little bit more relaxed applying to the place and that doesn't necessarily that's not necessarily true it's like it doesn't whatever your your non-discrimination statement says that says nothing about whether the manager of this particular position knows how to interact respectfully with trans people so
0: right, right. it's
1: not that's it's certainly not enough um, but there are things that you can do from the job posting level to make just to, to take gender out of it and to make it more of a, a neutral starting ground instead of an actively off-putting starting ground.
0: Right. Um, So I I think that's a good opportunity to transition to talking about pronouns because you have a whole chapter um, just about pronouns. And um, uh, can you talk a little bit about um, some of the common errors people (laughs) come to and why this is an issue that's important?
1: I think about this the same way I do about the uh, the word cisgender. It doesn't occur to some people, apparently, that everyone has pronouns. Cisgender people have pronouns. Binary trans people have pronouns, regardless of whether we're passing or not. Um, It's not a thing that only trans people or only non-binary people have. So some examples of pronouns, um, I think pretty much everyone is aware of he, him, his, and she, her, hers is um, standard binary pronouns. They, them is probably the most common of the gender-neutral pronouns, and that's one that's now widely accepted as being gender-neutral or, or, or being singular. Um, someone could use pronouns, someone could talk about me as, um, this is Stephen, they like soup, and that would be perfectly accurate and grammatically correct. And If someone tells you what pronouns they want you to use, use them and do the work to learn how if you're not sure. Something that I don't think we've talked too much about yet is misgendering. Um, Misgendering is incorrectly identifying someone either about them to someone else or to their face uh, as a gender that is not theirs. So if someone were to use she, her pronouns for me, that would be misgendering. It's also the case if someone – you don't have to be trans to be misgendered. So um, misgendering also happens in behaviors like um, telling someone they shouldn't be in a certain gender restroom. People present in all sorts of different ways, and it says nothing about their gender identity. Um, it is misgendering someone to give to incorrectly label them completely regardless of whether they're trans or cisgender. So telling a cisgender woman that she shouldn't be in – the women's restroom because of how you think she looks, that is misgendering. It doesn't matter that she's not trans. Um, The same goes for pronouns. If you use, if you call a cisgender woman, sir, that is misgendering just as much as it is to call a trans woman, sir. People have mixed thoughts on what to call someone, what pronouns to use for someone when you do not know their pronouns. I try to err on the side of using they, them, unless I know someone's pronouns. If you do know someone's pronouns, so say if you know someone goes by he, him pronouns, it is misgendering to call them they, them. If you know how someone identifies and what words you want them to use, using anything else is misgendering. In some cases, it's not – someone may not think it's a big deal and it may not directly impact their life. For a lot of trans people, misgendering can be incredibly harmful. It can be dangerous if you do it in certain cases. Um, to me there's an enormous difference between intentionally misgendering someone like if someone decides to use she her pronouns for me and to use my previous legal name knowing how i identify now that that tells me they don't think they don't respect who i am as a person and there's nothing i can do with that like if it's intentional that's an incredibly terrible thing to do um so accidental misgendering is very common. I've done it. I've done it after I transitioned. I felt very bad about it, um, but it is—it's not a thing to dwell on. So there are—I have the book in front of me because i have—I have, um, have flowcharts about. Yep. The first flowchart is very simple. Um, if you catch yourself having misgendered someone. Apologize very briefly, sincerely. Like, don't blow it off. um, But acknowledge that you made the mistake and that it was a mistake. Um, Correct yourself also quickly. Um, Move on with what you were saying. Don't dwell on it. Don't make it a big deal. Um, And the step that I don't always see included in instructions like this, like these, these are really common instructions. Like I formatted them into a flowchart, but I'm probably not the first person to do that. And I'm certainly I did not coin these guidelines. These are very standard. Um, but what doesn't always get included is you have to do better in the future. And that doesn't mean you never do it again, but it means you you do some work and eventually stop. So, for example, um, say I'm talking about someone who uses they-them pronouns, and I accidentally misgender them in conversation. How to apologize would sound like, as he was saying, I'm sorry, as they were saying, and then just move on. Um, right. That's all you have to do. So, a big theme throughout this book, and I probably should have said this earlier because it's one of my sort of recurring cores of how I, I talk about all this you don't know someone's gender by looking at them. You don't know if someone identifies as male or female or non binary or genderqueer or, or agender or what have you. Um, you don't know if someone is transgender. You don't know if someone is cisgender. You don't know that, and you have no right to know that. Even if you know that you have trans people working for you, it is not their job, unless it explicitly is their job, unless they are the person who has been hired to create uh, an inclusive workplace. Um, it is not their job to do this work. It's not their job to teach you how to make a, a workplace safe for their for themselves. Um a lot of times, we end up doing that work anyway because no one else is going to, and it turns into self-defense. Right, and right. if you want your work space to feel comfortable for you, you have to teach the people around you how to do that. So, one of the big things an employer can do is make this part of someone's job. Um, let someone like there are plenty of there are plenty of trans people and plenty of cis people and plenty of people who are neither who um, who do want to do this work. So pay them to do it, Um, give them work hours for it, make it optional, Um, make it so that the work is being done already, so that the people who are affected by it don't have to do it out of self-defense. And in a lot of places, that means starting a committee and asking people to volunteer. It's better than nothing, but
0: not great. So I want to kind of wrap up here, but I didn't want to leave before talking about conferences and how, um, I guess, specifically library conferences, but not really, it can be applied elsewhere, um, how they can be adjusted to meet the needs of people with um, different gender identities.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a a really important one. And um, I'm glad that you you mentioned it that way because um, I've heard feedback from non-librarians who have found this particular chapter to be really useful, because the content in it is not library-specific, you're right, it's it's just conferences tend to run the way they do, regardless of what the topic is. There are two big things, I think, about this one, and one is a lot of organizations already have people who have expertise in this. Um, ALA is a good example, I don't know how often what's now called the Rainbow Roundtable gets asked and brought into conversations about how to make the conference more gender-inclusive, but I know it's not enough, um, and I know it doesn't happen a lot. Maybe not every organization has a specific group about that, but they'll often have a diversity committee or something like that. Or if that's not available, you can reach out to other organizations that do um, or people who have written and published about this. So don't try and, and reinvent the wheel Like. You don't have to make up how to do a, a conference in a trans-inclusive way. People have expertise in this, and there are people who, probably within your organization, who do know how to do this properly. Right. So reach out to them. And the other thing that comes up is that sometimes there's a disconnect between the what the organization thinks should be done and what the the Staff of the conference center think should be done. There was an instance a couple of years ago at ALA Annual that I think a, a number of people have heard about now where a non binary attendee of the conference attempted to use a restroom that ALA had labeled as all gender with their very odd signs that they use for that. But <laughs> the intent is there. <laughs> their job. <dry>. Um, <laughs> there. Um, someone who didn't work for ala but who worked for the conference center prevented them from using it because they had decided that they didn't want all gender restrooms there like this person specifically not the conference center as a whole and that's almost to me i think that's almost worse than not having all gender restrooms at all because it was i mean it's an awful experience for the person and it's incredibly harmful to to have that sort of situation i say this as someone who's never organized a conference but <laughs> i imagine that this is something you could work out at least in communication with the conference center beforehand if not as part of your contract with them if you plan it far ahead enough everyone who's there needs to be on board and just go back to, to general library services as well like it doesn't make a difference if you have a, a good non-discrimination statement if um, the people actually conducting your interview don't know how to work with a non-binary person. Um, it doesn't matter if you have a great restroom policy if the person who's working at the surf desk has decided that only skirt people get to go in the women's restroom. Mm-hmm. Um, be in touch with the people who are on the ground as well as the the big picture policies for conferences. Also, unfortunately, and <laughs> at least in the U.S. right now, location makes a uh, it can make a big difference. Um, I was a grad student in North Carolina when HB2 got passed, and that was a real fun time to be transitioning. Um, yeah. <laughs> it meant a lot to me when organizations started um, canceling their conferences there. Like That makes a difference. We notice. We care about that. Um, I know there are situations where it's a huge expensive thing that you just you can't move um, because things get planned so far ahead. Right. If that happens, be public about the the reasons why. Like, I'm a lot more likely to attend a conference that said, like, look, we know that this is a problem in this state. Um, here's why we can't move, and here are the things that we have done to make this space safe for our trans attendees. So just because not doing that ties back into the invisibility that mm-hmm. we talked about at the beginning. Like, a conference that just goes on and doesn't do that. I don't know what conversations I've had behind the scenes. They may very well have had serious discussion about what to um, whether they could feasibly move, but I don't know that unless they tell us. I'm a lot more likely to stay in the organization and keep going to their events if they are clear about the fact that we've thought about this. We know we have trans attendees and we're trying to do something, even if we can't do all the things. I mean, there are events, there are are small events that I have chosen not to go to specifically because they were at schools that had terrible policies about firing trans people. Mm -hmm. Um, So just being aware of the impact of location is a big thing.
0: Well, and going back to our pronoun discussion, that that ties in as well, because like in registration, again, there's no reason, like just like with library card registration, there's no reason to ask that. Um, Uh But on name badges and stuff, you can offer that as an option to have on your name badge to make it easier because, again, like you said, you can't tell from looking at somebody what their gender is. And instead of having to say, hey, what's your gender? (laughs) You can just have it on your name badge and go, oh, okay. Yeah. I'm
1: glad you brought pronouns up again because I do do want to touch briefly on that. Um, There are three rules that I go by for pronoun sharing and that... Pronoun sharing, like telling people your pronouns or creating a situation in which people are asked to share their pronouns, has to be three things. It has to be – the main thing is that it has to be optional. Like do not require people to put their pronouns on their name badge. That is not an okay thing to do. Right. Um, have a space for it where people can if they want to. Um, the second thing is that it has to be open-ended. Have a fill in the blank for it ideally. Um maybe with an explanation for people who don't know what that means. Um, but just in general, when you're, when you're, whether it's in a meeting or just individually talking to someone, never force someone to share their pronouns. And to me, that means never point blank ask someone what their pronouns are. Um, when I'm, I err on the side of, I will share my pronouns, and that demonstrates that, <laughs> for one thing, again, it's such a low bar, but I understand the concept of sharing pronouns, um, (laughs) but it also invites other people to follow the example if they want to. But I don't ask someone their pronouns in a way that they feel like they have to answer or make a big deal out of not answering. For conferences too, and this goes back to job applications as well, um, be clear about what you're asking. So if I see a field that says name, um, Stephen is my legal name now, but it wasn't for a while, I don't know what that means. I don't know if this job system will reject me if I don't put my legal name. I know now that I can put whatever name I want on my resume, but that's not a thing I knew when I was job hunting as a grad student. Mm-hmm. Um, so just be very clear about what you're asking. If you're asking for someone's legal name, say that. Also say why you need that information. Um, if you're asking for some – the language I use is name of use. So I don't love the the idea of preferred name or preferred pronouns because they're not preferred. They're just – They're your name or your pronouns. So, name of use is the name that you use and want other people to use. Right, right. Um, So, if you need that, say that and say what that is. Um, Say that it's fine if it's different from your legal name. Um, This is why I had so many uh, example language sections in the book. Like, um, I've run into a lot of people who want to say the right thing and want to do the right thing and just aren't sure how best to do it. Um, And the example language probably won't age all that well and it certainly don't want to doesn't apply to every situation but it was important to me to have language set out so people could see oh it's
0: possible you can right do right you can right do yeah because like like people don't even know where to start <laughs> yeah um,
1: but yeah just with name or gender or salutation or whatever say what you're asking and why you're asking like for a conference registration you probably need my legal name to charge my credit card um have that be a separate field and say, this name will only be used to charge your credit card. It will not be put on your badge. Mm -hmm. Uh, So just be clear about what you're asking and don't ask things that you don't need to know. I encourage everyone to keep educating themselves. Um, If you're cisgender and want to be supportive, it is your job to do that work. Um, And there are a lot of resources available for you to do that. Um, If you are trans, it's not your job to... Um, to create a safe space for yourself I know that ends up happening a lot um, but the point of this book and sharing all the other resources is, is making it so that it's less on us as individuals to, do, to have to do
0: that work and, and if you're cisgender, one of the great resources is Supporting Trans People in Libraries by Stephen Kruger.
1: <laughs> Indeed. I agree. <laughs>
0: um, and, and if people have um, follow-up questions for this inter- from this interview, um, how could they get in touch with you to um, ask those questions?
1: Uh, let's see. Well, I think you have my Twitter handle. Um, I can also put my email address in the show notes. Um, people are welcome to contact me on either of those. Um, I am always happy to Um, to talk about this and answer questions about it or um, help people work through best practices. Uh, So yeah, feel free to reach out to me. All
0: right. Well, um, Steven, thank you so much. Um, Always nice to have another Steven on the show. (laughs) It's a good name, right? Yes. It's a very good name. All right. So we are going to add a little bit here at the end, an extra conversation with Stephen. We had recorded the original part of the interview that you just heard back in March. And um, that was back when I was kind of loading up on interviews and building up my queue because I was home a lot (laughs) during the especially during the early parts of the pandemic. Um, But um, an issue came up that we thought Uh, we could not let go past without um, commenting on, because Stephen's book is supporting trans people in libraries, and there was a story in the news about people not supporting trans people in libraries. Um, So the story um, basically is Library Journal's Library of the Year went to Seattle Public Library, which, for the record, yes, they do all kinds of great things. However, they um, allowed a a speaker who we will kind of describe um, in, a, in a minute what the views were, but basically anti-trans views um, to use their meeting room and use the intellectual freedom kind of argument as to why they were uh, allowing it and libraries are neutral and all that kind of thing. Um, so Stephen, um, we wanted to get your thoughts on it, but generally I, I, we, we talked earlier about um, definitions of terms. and I think it would be helpful for this discussion to define the word, the word turf.
1: I am going to try not to spend a lot of time giving, um, space to the views that were, um, expressed by the speaker because I think that was a waste of energy and not something that I am particularly comfortable, um, talking about too much. But, um, the word TERF is an acronym uh, for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. Um, this is a bad thing. Like, <laughs> uh, this is an incredibly harmful view. It's. Yes. Um, I also don't think as a feminist view personally. As a, a sort of self-identified feminist, like I think the anti-trans element um, is completely cancels out any any potential feminism that might have been had. Okay. And but basically, it means someone who does not believe that trans people, I guess, exist. <laughs> Again, I'm probably not actually the best person to describe it because I try to avoid, you know, reading about these views. The issue was that the group hosted that used the library's meeting room and has used a bunch of other public libraries' meeting rooms has incredibly harmful anti trans views. And uh, libraries keep hosting them anyway.
0: And then one of the issues with that, obviously, is um, that's happened, like, not just at Seattle, but to choose this year of all years um, to award them as being um, holding them up as the library of the year was um, problematic at the, (laughs) at the least, I guess.
1: So I don't want to go into the meeting room debate. I don't want to, I don't even really care about debating whether Seattle public library deserves the award. Like, as you said, and as the, um, as the articles point out, the work they do around racial equity is incredible and is very much worthy of notice and getting the award. It's just giving it this year when their main news story was about this hate group is a choice by Library Journal. What I, what bothers me more than anything was that in the original article that like the announcement saying this is the recipient of our award here's all the work that they're doing Library Journal just didn't mention this event at all. Um, and it's not that it happened after they wrote the article. Like, they talk about COVID-19. This, and I cannot imagine that they didn't know about it. it. Like, this was getting attention from like local news sources. It's, this wasn't just within the library world, even. But the, the articles that Library Journal wrote about the Seattle Public Library, I'm looking at it now, um, it talks about equity, Mostly racial, it, which again is incredibly important and valuable work. I am legitimately very impressed by the work that they have done, um, and it just—it talks about community leadership and uh, Let's see, the highlight to me is the article, the article section that's titled "Hard Conversations." I think there there is an argument to be made, and Library Journal, Library Journal explicitly makes it repeatedly that SPL deserves this award. Um, And especially right now with Black Lives Matter and a focus on racial justice in American society, I don't think that's an invalid argument. I personally do wish that they had chosen not this year to give the award because of what happened with the hate group, but I, I would have a whole lot less of a problem with this if they had taken this hard conversation section and acknowledge that this thing happened at all and acknowledge that a massive number of trans people and allies uh, on social media and in conversations with the library and elsewhere had problems with this event that the library chose to go forward with it anyway. They just don't acknowledge that. And I I can't get over the fact that they just didn't think it worth mentioning. Uh, the other in the hard conversation section, they have a transgender story. They talk about how in 2017, I'm reading it off the page now because I can't summarize it without being filled with rage. Um, a transgender patient was denied access to a family restroom in the central library's children's center because the library policy forbade its use by adults without children. Um, the patient filed a complaint with the city's office of civil rights, took their criticism public on social media, and the incident was covered in the local press. Um, they talk about. Uh, i like, summarizing, now they, they talk about how the library talked to their staff, they, quote, reached out to the transgender community, not really sure what that means. Uh, they apologized publicly, reworked their policy, changed their signage. Like, I wouldn't feel great about this story anyway, because it is, to me, it is the most trite, packaged version of the trans experience that says it centers the people who didn't realize that this would be a problem and who were doing the harm. And it turns it into this neat thing where they learned their lesson and now things are great, um, which I have trouble believing. But also, like, it's 2020. There are trans stories that are not about restrooms. And I just, I am deeply frustrated that they chose to take this, quote, hard conversation section and include this conversation that really isn't that hard. This section, like taking a three-year-old story about um, how they wouldn't let someone use a restroom once and then treating that as a success, um, when this much harder conversation, a much more relevant and much more recent conversation just happened, I, I can't wrap my head around that writing choice by, by a library journal. To me, this says this writing choice says... We're happy to acknowledge the existence of trans people, but only in these very cliche, very easy stories that where we can say, we did the thing and we fixed it. Any trans patron can tell you that you probably didn't. If they had taken this section and actually written about the hate group speaking and why they chose to do what they did, I still wouldn't be happy about it, certainly, because there's a... Um, There's a whole nice space between um, awarding someone for something and just choosing somebody else. Like they didn't, Library Journal didn't have to take a stand on like whether this was the meeting room was what issue was well handled or not. They they just didn't have to do that. They could have just chosen somebody else right now. They could have looked at this and said, okay, this racial equity work is incredibly important, but because of this anti-trans experience that happened that was so harmful to their trans staff, their trans trans librarians, wherever um, we're just we're not going to give it to them this year. Like this is a deal breaker. I don't think that would have been hard. I don't. I don't know what I want from them at this point. Like,
0: well, and so, and so they, after the initial yeah. story, they they did do a couple of follow up um, arguments. What they did what, what did you feel about those?
1: Uh, the first one made it worse. Um, their first follow-up was the day after saying basically oh, uh we have now realized that people are upset about this um, a couple of days ago they had an actual sort of response, which I, I do appreciate that they took their time thinking about how to do something more meaningful than just what they first put out um, and so their most recent response is, let's see They are sticking with the award, which we will get to. Um, Have a list of stuff that they are going to start doing. And this is, again, this library journal. Um, They are talking about launching a column focused on, quote, queer issues in libraries. They want to publish another issue focused on, quote, queer and trans issues. I will explain why I'm quoting those in a minute. Um, Host a forum for, quote, queer and trans people in the field. Reconsider their... The selection process for the awards trained staff on anti-trans discrimination they did make a ten thousand dollar donation to seattle Gender justice league which i think is the most meaningful part of all this because that is an important thing to do and so i do really appreciate that they to some extent um put some put some actual money behind it which is what you have to do and what which very rarely happens something i I'm very frustrated, about, frustrated by throughout all this is that this is a specifically trans issue. This impacts trans people, whether it's patrons, staff, librarians, whatever. This is not a queer issue. This is not a, quote, queer and trans issue. Um, I think in one of the previous statements, they talk about how uh, during the meeting room event, the library, had, the library leadership had discussion with, quote, the LGBTQIA plus community, and I have no problem with these umbrella terms existing, but this issue wasn't about the LGBTQIA+ community. This issue was about trans people and how specifically trans people were impacted. I don't see them realizing that there's a difference. The umbrella, the umbrella terms are very valuable when that's what, when they're when they're appropriate. Yes. But using them automatically when they don't apply when there's a specific group that you're talking about, like, especially, and it, it is a pretty common and um, at best not great, but sometimes harmful way that uh, people often talk about queer issues. And there are some very specific ways from healthcare to representation to, like, restrooms where the experiences of LGBT people or non-trans queer people are not synonymous with the experiences of queer people. Like, I don't feel great hearing that the library leadership talked about, talked to local queer groups about um, the, the trans exclusionary group because that, I don't know what that means. Maybe it means they talk to people who actually have knowledge and experience in trans issues. Maybe it means they talk to a gay guy. My first reaction to the most recent message announcing what Library Journal plans to do. The their donations and the things that they have done, I actually responded pretty positively to it because i I didn't expect anything. I certainly didn't expect and continued to not expect them to rescind the award. And I've been trying to reconcile my own reaction to it. A lot of people have reacted in all sorts of different ways, um, and there are plenty of people, trans and otherwise, who are holding fast to the opinion that this is very much not enough, that the only thing that is enough is rescinding the award and donating the award money. And I that is a completely reasonable perspective. Um, my friend Max made a, a Twitter post about how, the, how often part of the queer experience is settling for so little. I think that explains a lot of how I am feeling about this, because I didn't even expect them to really acknowledge the issue at all, let alone make donations and make commitments to improved representation. Anything at all feels like a success, and I haven't detached my own thoughts on it enough to properly analyze whether I think this is a, a victory or not, because I we are so used to not getting any sort of recognition. If they do these things, I think that's a good use of their power. I think like having the columns and forums and such that they're talking about would be great. The concerns have been raised about the amount of work that this will be putting on their existing trans and queer staff. And I think that's an incredibly important thing to be aware of that very often this sort of thing results in expecting those people to do the work or those people ending up doing the work because like any equity work because there's no one else there who's knowledgeable enough to do it so it doesn't it's if you want it done well you have to do it so it's not really optional even if your employer says it is um, so i think all the things that are describing if done well would be great but they will have to be really careful to do them well which they might do so we'll see my main how i feel about this mainly i think is just I'm so tired of caring about it. I'm so tired of wasting energy on this thing with all of the Black Lives Matter protests, with the pandemic. Like, I don't want to spend energy caring about Library Journal's (laughs) Library of the Year award. This is just such a a waste of energy. And I'm very annoyed that, that they're forcing us to put this much work into Responding.
0: Not now, Library Journal.
1: Exactly. I was thinking that this morning. Like, come on. We have we have more important things to do. We all have more important things to do right now.
0: Well, I think uh-huh. I, I'm, the way I wrap it up to, for me is that I think it ties into the book that you wrote, Supporting Trans People in Libraries, because I think a lot of why they changed their mind and why they put out these... I mean, they didn't change their mind, but why they put out these extra um, follow-up discussions and follow-up posts is because of the feedback that they got. So I think they, the support... <laughs> Um, from the trans community and from allies and things like that, um, sort of forced their hand to acknowledge. So, so I think that's why we need to continue to support trans people in libraries. Exactly. Thank you.
1: Thank you for the book plug again. <laughs> um, yeah, like there was a, a letter that was signed by, I think, close to 2,000 library workers um, asking them to rescind the award. A bunch of their uh, The people who've won their Movers and Shakers awards um, have asked for those rewards to be rescinded for them personally. Bazi Attar has also, as ever, an amazing blog post about it. So there has been a pretty enormous amount of backlash. And whether it's enough or not is, is up for debate, but it is a meaningful response. And I don't think that would have happened without all of everything that happened on social media and all of the letters. And I know a lot of people have been contacting the editor individually and so that labor was forced by the decisions that they made Um, but there were people willing to do that labor and it wasn't all trans people which I really appreciate
0: Alright well um, Stephen thank you so much for coming back on to add to that um, um, add to our original discussion because I think again just putting out the original interview in this (laughs) climate would have seemed weird to not acknowledge um, what happened Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks. Circulating Ideas is produced in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place of work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice, and help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at Circa Ideas, or like the show's Facebook page. Theme music is by Pamela Clicka, and the logo is by Shandy Fry. Thanks for listening, and keep circulating your ideas.